Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Fago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has entered its fourth week as Moscow resorts to even more brutal punitive tactics, prompting President Biden to label Vladimir Putin and his leadership team as war criminals. Vladimir Zelensky addressed a joint session of the U.S. Congress, calling on America to help end the war, sanction Russia's entire leadership, and give Ukraine more equipment and a no-fly zone. Biden and other NATO leaders have flatly ruled out a no-fly zone, saying that it would put NATO in direct confrontation with Russian air and land forces. Biden, however, authorized another $800 million in uh, aid, including switchblade loitering munitions, but only about 100 of them that will be shipped along with more anti-armor and anti-air missiles and millions of bullets and other gear. The administration is also trying to organize Eastern European nations uh, to uh, transfer their uh, Russian-made air and missile defenses, especially air uh, S-300 um, weaponry uh, to Ukraine, which has been using those systems to great effect. Uh, Romania has uh, said that it would do so, calling on NATO to backfill uh, that capability. Uh, Biden also spoke directly with Xi Jinping to make clear Washington would not allow China to evade U.S. and international sh- uh, sanctions should Beijing decide to help Russia economically Uh, and militarily. Joining us today to discuss all this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend, who is now with the Center for a New American Security and in Paris, where he is teaching uh, at uh, Sciences Po, um, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. Uh, before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Check out our two weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime issues each week, and tune into the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. Michael, uh, start us off uh, on the Hill. Uh, the Senate did pass a permanent change to uh, uh, wanting to adopt daylight savings time, which was the wrong move. Uh, as always, uh, you know, it's, it's great to see that they can do uh, stupid things fast, but the important stuff, not at all or too slowly. It should be standard time, as everybody knows, because of circadian rhythm reasons. And I don't even know why this is such a big deal, given that, you know, you, you lose an hour, you gain an hour. It's, it's not the end of the universe. Uh, but uh, let's talk more about uh, the COVID situation. There's another wave uh, brewing in Europe. Every time we've seen Europe surge, Roughly about two weeks or so later, it hits the United States. Uh, This one, I don't think, has a designated name yet. Only 65% of Americans are vaccinated. At least 1 million Americans are already dead, uh, in part uh, because of reckless politics. Where are we on the COVID measure the president wants? And more importantly, what's the sentiment up there? Because people are really getting back to normal. We all want to get back to normal. The question is how we do that prudently without killing people. As you know, there was a compromise initially in the omnibus to reduce that number to 15 billion. Uh, But then at the last minute, uh, Democrats actually revolted against it because they did not agree with the offsets used to pay for that 15 billion. Uh, And as a result, it fell out of the omnibus. 
So President Biden sent a letter to Congress earlier this week urging them to pass the full $22.5 billion uh, COVID supplemental without any uh, budgetary offsets. And, you know, in his letter, he said, look, we really need this to avoid severe disruptions in our COVID response. As you just pointed out, there's a wave in Europe. We're anticipated to have one here. We need to be ready for it. And there are consequences for the lack of funding, which means there will be no additional purchases of monoclonal antibodies that the states will need, uh, fewer tests uh, made in America, uh, fewer treatments for the immune compromise, and uh, risk of running uh, short on vaccines. Uh, so you know, the initial plan, as we discussed last week, was that hopefully to pass that this week. Obviously, it's Friday did not happen. Uh, Pelosi was furious with her Democrats that revolted against her. And she's even even more furious uh, this week because had her Democrats not revolted, um, that uh, it would have passed last week and we would have that funding available uh, now to go on their own. It look, doesn't look like the Republicans are going to provide them any help, even and at the same time. They are still looking for offsets that the Republicans can't agree to. So this is going to be, if they are able to pass this, it's going to be something they're going to have to pass through the House with only Democratic votes with the hope that they can peel off 10 Republican senators when the time comes. And that's it if the time comes. Um, I want to get to uh, Vladimir Zelensky's address to Congress uh, and uh, Russia's um, illegal and unwarranted attack on its sovereign uh, neighbor. But first, I want to ask you that the administration is scrambling to recraft its budget and strategy documents in the wake of the Russia invasion. Um, but from what's being leaked, it's kind of getting negative bipartisan reviews, right? I mean, it, it's not out until it's out. But we're hearing that some of the uh, weapons that you think would have been priorities at this time of great power competition, and as we're going to focus more uh, on the China threat, are being dialed back. Uh, other moves are just, I think, simply wasteful, right? I mean, uh, it looks like uh, the number of F-35 fighters um, for the Air Force will be cut back, as well as the service's hypersonic investment. Uh, the Navy wants to scrap 10 of its littoral combat ships, constituting uh, something like $5 billion in ships that have been uh, built. Uh, they want to use it. They could have used it for other priorities like maintenance, higher end platforms, weapons, uh, more submarines. Um, you know, I think that the calculus they're making is that these ships cost $70 million a year. And one of the reasons why they've always wanted to retire one of the aircraft carriers is to save that amount of money. On the other hand, there are folks who are saying at a time you need ships, these are perfect ships to be forward in the Pacific and shallow water uh, areas. How are lawmakers greeting some of these things that we're seeing from the administration? Because it sounds like even the House Armed Services Committee chairman isn't happy about it. Yeah, I think you're right. There is strong bipartisan support right now on the Hill to uh, spend more money in the defense of our national security. And the question is going to be how much more money and on what. And uh, as it remains to be seen what really is in this budget request and, and what is not when it comes over. But there are numbers being thrown around on the Hill now without blinking an eye to plus up the president's budget request in excess of $40 billion when it comes over. Now, that's also you know, to keep up with inflation and to also keep pace with what was laid out you know, in the national defense strategy uh, from the previous administration. But um, you know, I, I think you always see Congress uh, play a strong and important role in uh, the defense budget process. I think we're gonna see a much more active role this year uh, than we've ever seen before. But you know, we do have a problem this being an election year that I think we will see you know, an NDAA passed the House and Senate. We'll probably see, you know, obviously defense appropriations bills, but we're going to end up with a CR again at the end of this year. And if the Republicans win the House and the Senate, they're going to want to make modifications to this defense bill uh, after the election's over, 
probably kicking the uh, defense bill into January, February again uh, of next year. So this is going to be a long drawn out process, but I do see Congress making significant uh, changes to it. Um, Dove, um, I want to briefly bring you into this because uh, the Bush administration was looking at skipping a generation of weapons, um, right? Uh, the strategic documents were created, the budget plans were created, uh, and then 9-11 happened and, the, and, and you were comptroller at the time and had to get back to the drawing board uh, for what was going to be a sharp increase. And at the time, I remember the administration said, hey, look, we can get to addressing the itches and the specifics of this, right? Everybody knows we did the best we could to recraft this in the wake of 9-11. From, from that standpoint, you know, what, what, what are you picking up in terms of the signals uh, and, and whether some of the things the administration are proposing are sensible or are they just, hey, we've got to bring it in under the 773 cap that uh, OMB has given us. Uh, we'll make trade-offs and we know that Congress is going to buy all of this stuff back. So, hey, everybody... Don't panic. Just relax. I think you nailed it. Um, when I was in the Pentagon the other day speaking to people about the budget, that's exactly what they told me. They they said, look, um, you know, Congress keeps giving us uh, C-130s that we don't want. A-10s are still around. Believe me, this is the point that was made. Believe me, um, Congress will add whatever, you know, we don't put in ourselves. Um, that's the classic gold watch argument. Um, and I think it's going to work. I think Mike's right. Uh, there will be, they'll, you know, they'll, they're still fighting with OMB by the way. Um, but, uh, whatever number they come in will be significantly higher than what they came in with last year. Uh, and it will be higher than what just, uh, was in the omnibus. Uh, but it'll be far too low, particularly if you assume inflation is going to be somewhere seven to 8%. Who knows, maybe even higher. Uh, given all of that, uh, it, and by the way, there's a, an important ar uh, article, an op-ed by Larry Summers in today's Washington Post, which demonstrates that what the Fed is doing is not going to keep up with inflation, and that's going to still go up. Uh, and given that, uh, Congress is going to plus up by a huge amount. Uh, whether that sticks uh, after the 22 elections, uh, I think uh, Mike's right. Uh, I don't know how long the CR will go, but we're going to have a CR again uh, and there'll be changes. But the overall top line is going to be much higher. DOD expects it. They're gold watching it. And so it's all, you know, political games again. Um, I, I just want to point out that um, even though this measure may be tens of billions of dollars more, right? I mean, uh, Michael, I think you've used uh, sort of 813, 812, 810, they're about uh, that neighborhood. It's a nice nice neighborhood. That's $40 billion more than the administration is likely to request. But I just want to point out to the audience, inflation has already eaten up about $60 billion of the Pentagon's budget, right? So, you know, you're, you're giving more money, but you're giving more money to basically tread water in a sense, right? So I can see a little bit of the, of the administration's argument here that we're going to have to make choices within this budget, uh, ultimately, um, to, to try to make uh, ways and means uh, meet. Um, let me uh, shift. Well, well, wait do, do you want to add, minute, though, uh, go ahead. That, you that add anything to that? Yes, yes, because that argument presupposes some kind of limit on what Congress is going to add. And it's not at all clear to me that uh, they're not going to fully factor in inflation and then some for the reason that you gave at the uh, onset of this uh, podcast. Namely, we've still got a war with Ukraine going on. And for all you know, it might still be going on uh, over the next several months. So, um, uh, Michael, 
do you, do you think that we actually might be looking at a number significantly north of 810, right? Our lawmaker is going to look at this and say, hey, wait a minute, we have to compensate for inflation. And we also have to deal with the tangible increase, which then starts to bring you actually more into hundred billion dollar tariff. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I, I am not at all, as everybody knows, not a spend more to spend more kind of guy, but we are at an inflection point and there's a lot of crap we have to do in a short amount of time. We have a small window to keep deterring China, who's given us the 2027 date, right? Michael, do, do we end up actually significantly north of it? I mean, is anybody talking about sort of the 813, 830 neighborhood uh, at all, like cover inflation and then give them a plus up? Or is this just going to be, I'll meet them on inflation via Condias? I think a lot of that remains to be seen. I mean, the number that's being tossed around right now is 814, right? So that would be, I think, 44 billion above what we expect the president to submit in his budget request. But uh, as Congress conducts their hearings and their oversight, that number um, could go up. And, you know, we saw that number go up in, in the conference discussions between the House and the Senate uh, when it came time to do the Omni. So there's a, a lot of runway here. Uh, for that number to go up. And uh, I think a lot that a lot depends on uh, the situation in Ukraine and uh, inflation and a lot of other factors that will evolve over the year. Uh, deterrence is a lot cheaper than fighting a war. If we had kept Russia from invading Ukraine, it would have been cheaper and better for everybody at the end of the day. So that's the only reason why I'm saying if you want to telegraph seriousness, let's get some capability out there in volume that would make our Chinese uh, friends uh, reconsider uh, per perhaps their uh, miscalculations they may be harboring. Let me shift the conversation to Ukraine. Uh, lawmakers uh, are, you know, heard from uh, Vladimir Zelensky. Um, it was um, a great address, a moving address. Uh, that video of life before and uh, it, what life was like uh, in Ukraine and now was very, very uh, powerful uh, and uh, sufficiently gory to remind people that this was a peaceful nation, uh, ultimately, uh, before Vladimir Putin uh, got involved in it. Uh, and yet, uh, there were GOP lawmakers, for example, who, who blasted uh, and, and had voted against uh, Biden's $13 billion aid package uh, for, for Kiev. Um, you know, I should note the Biden, the, the Trump administration didn't want to give anything to Ukraine, and it was Congress that, that drove that. What do lawmakers want the administration to do at this point? Um, and, you know, is there anything more muscular that we could do that doesn't risk uh, conflict uh, ultimately with, with Russia? Well, uh, I think it, it's important to point out that that $13.6 billion in aid to Ukraine that was concluded in the omnibus did receive an enormous amount of number of Republican votes, even though there were some Republicans that voted against that measure. Um, I don't think uh, it's fair to say that Republicans are not being supportive. I think we've seen uh, a dramatic tectonic, tectonic shift where that the you know, pro-Putin forces within the Trump party are really being shouted down right now uh, by the more uh, hawkish and traditional uh, Republicans. And uh, you know, I think that the Zelensky's address resonated really with, with both sides. I've talked, I spent a lot of time this week with both Republicans and Democrats who all had nothing but praise uh, for the impactful speech that he gave. And you know, so he asked for um, more aid. He asked for additional sanctions. Yeah, obviously, he did make another plea for the no-fly zone, which, of course, he's still not going to get. And you know, Biden responded later that day with an additional $800 million in military assistance uh, for Ukraine, which brings, I think, the aid number this week up to $1 billion. So, you know, more money for anti-aircraft systems, uh, shoulder-mounted uh, and anti-armor missiles, uh, ammunition, machine guns, shotguns, grenade launchers, and drones, which you mentioned, you know, earlier on. And, you know, talk about Republicans, in addition to that, um, the ranking members of the Armed Services Committee, the Intelligence Committee, and the Foreign Affairs Committee all sent, signed on to a letter 
to Lloyd Austin and, and uh, Tony Blinken, urging them uh, to both their departments to rapidly exercise the authority that Congress provided them in the omnibus, that $13.6 billion, um, and that they call on the departments to make use of those emergency fundings without delay. And they also reiterated that the need uh, for restocking is only going to grow more urgent with each passing day. So but it was, uh, in addition to that, they actually put in their own laundry list of things that they feel that the administration should be spending money on, uh, different weapon systems and, and aid that should be going over to Ukraine. And uh, in, this, in the same letter, uh, the voice support for the delivery of the Polish uh, MiG-29s. Uh, and, and they said that we encourage the department to reevaluate the flawed conclusion that the transfer of these fighter jets to Ukraine would be escalatory. So uh, in comparison to the systems that, that we've already provided. So uh, I think it's fair to say the Republicans are, in, in some cases, even trying to out-hawk the, the Democrats on aid to Ukraine. Michael, and what you're talking about is this uh, that we've discussed over the last couple of weeks, the tendency uh, of Washington, despite its extraordinary uh, economic sanctions, uh, organizing the world. We should also point out that anybody who knows anything knows that there is an extraordinary amount of help. Uh, that is uh, coming uh, from the United States and its allies that is not public uh, in in this uh, uh, circumstance. But again, this tendency of self-deterrence and uh, Dove, I want to get uh, to you in a, in a, in a minute uh, because you wrote a very thoughtful piece in The Hill talking about how you know we, we've got to kind of move away from this self-deterrence thing uh, that we've got going on. Jim, uh, let me bring you into this. You're joining us from Paris as you have for the last couple of weeks. Um, the Russian army is, is literally being chewed uh, to pieces uh, and yet Putin has still shown no signs of, of backing off. Um, you know, have have spoken to senior leaders in the Pentagon and, and around the world. And at this rate, you know, he, he's not really going to have an army left. Uh, and yet he keeps uh, bullying ahead. He's, he's shown that his force is adept at, you know, honestly, targeting civilians as terror weapons, striking women, children, the elderly. Um, you know, I think about 130 people have been saved, have been rescued from the Mariupol uh, theater, the clearly marked uh, theater that was being used uh, as as a shelter, and the Russians still bombed it. And and there there were at least uh, estimates say thirteen hundred people that were in that uh, facility. Ten ten people were killed standing in a breadline in Chernihiv. Um, as I've said before, I think that what Putin is trying to do is he knows he's not going to take Ukraine. He's just trying to pound it to rubble. There are those who still worry that Putin is going to strike somewhere. Where and with what forces at this point? And what has to happen to stop this war, ultimately, from from your perspective and what your European friends are telling you at this point and American friends are telling you at this point? Well, I I think the first thing we have to have to remember is that, uh, I mean, despite people saying that the Russian army is being ground to pieces and, and, you know, saying a lot of very optimistic things, uh, Russia still has a lot of military capability left, a lot. And they're bringing some of those forces from other parts of Russia back into the Ukraine battlefield. They're, they're, they're going to be rotating forces that have been, who, who have been chewed up. They're going to rotate them out and put fresh forces back in. So I think we should not underestimate uh, the Russian capability that they will be rebuilding there in the battlefield uh, and, um, and what they might try to do with it. I, it seems to me uh, Putin is going to double down I think he wants to take Kiev. I think he still feels that if he can lay a siege on Kiev, I don't know if he'll try to penetrate inside of that city, but if he feels that he can lay a siege and, and maybe do a pincer movement to cut off those forces from Ukraine that are in the Donbas, 
I think he's going to want to do that. And I think it's just uh, it's just going to take more effort. And then, and while he is trying to rebuild his forces, he's going to continue the terror bombing. Uh, you know, he's I don't see him. Uh, you know, I, I know his troops are adapting, I, but they're, they're not adapting enough, I think, so that we can really see it. But uh, but I think we we should not discount where this what this Russian military capability can do. And I don't, I don't think there's anything else on his mind right now, but taking Kiev uh, with the, the thinking that if Kiev is taken, then everything, everything else is going to drop away. That might be what he's thinking. And then maybe it's going to take a bit longer than he thought, but I think he's going to, he's going to try to do it. So, so then effectively then, and, and, and I want to invite everybody to participate in this, so ultimately, we just have to wait for him to end this, right? Uh, it's unlikely he is going to be overthrown, um, right? I mean, we hear about dissent. We're, you know, obviously the courageous uh, Russian uh, producer uh, and her protest uh, over the course of the week. There are more protesters on Russian streets, right? I mean, uh, Russian friends of mine tell me that when the rank, you know, when regular folks who are sort of United Russia Party voters are going to get hit in the pocketbook right now. It's always the upper classes that are first, then the middle class will start protesting and taking to the streets. And then eventually it'll be um, the, the poorer folks, the rank and file who are not interconnected and they're not as on social media and certainly have no Western connections. Uh, you know, as, as people pointed out, Russians aren't stupid. I mean, do we basically have, are we basically along the, uh, along for the ride? And is there anything, anybody, is there anything else that we can do to stop this sooner? Well, a couple of things. Uh, One is it's becoming increasingly obvious that the, um, the Russian people uh, to a large degree uh, have been taken in by what Putin has been saying. Uh, that there was recently a, uh, you might have seen this image of a the football stadium there, a soccer stadium uh, in Russia that was uh, full of, of Russians waving the Russian flag, uh, and that type of thing. So it's, I, I think our hope earlier that there would be a lot of, of demonstrations on the street, that the Russian people would not be taken in by this uh, misinformation that has been going on for years, by the way. Uh, that Putin has been doing. And now, of course, it's full of denazifying uh, Ukraine, et cetera. We were hoping that they would not be taken in and we would see, you know, protests in the streets. We're seeing some protests, but they're being pretty brutally suppressed. Uh, and we're not seeing that large number of, of Russian citizens running out in the streets. Um, how many are, are fully behind Putin and believe him, you know, drunk the Kool-Aid 100 percent? I don't think it's clear, but not enough have not. Uh, and so we're not seeing that kind of protest. And so, in a sense, we are kind of along for the ride. And the guy driving the bus is Putin. And what we have to do is keep those Ukraine uh, forces supplied with ammunition, supplied with uh, not just Stinger, but other uh, more sophisticated, longer range air defense. I mean, there's a lot of things that, that, that uh, we need to continue to move down the supply lines. I think everyone's pretty aware of what they are, including former Soviet equipment. You know, they're, they're going to the the newer allies who still have former Soviet uh, uh, S-300s and this type of thing in their inventories to pump those into Ukraine where they're already trained on how to use uh, that kind of former Soviet air defense. So there are things being done. There's also things being done more quietly. And I think there's been some talk about uh, the help that we've been providing, whether it's on the cyber area or targeting and that type of thing. So there's these other things being done too. But the most important thing is 
um, these these Ukraine soldiers, uh, the forces in the field, as well as the civilians, are exhausted. Uh, there's they need more humanitarian assistance. Uh, they they need more people too. Quite frankly, the uh, ground forces are being split between the humanitarian part of the mission as well as the on the barricades part of the mission. And so um, so we have to do everything we can to help that Ukrainian ground force to hang in there and particularly to pump air defense systems so they can keep the Russian Air Force at bay. Um, I should uh, point out to the um, my view and, and one that uh, uh, retired Lieutenant General Dave Deptula of the Mitchell Institute yesterday said was, these are all defensive arms. This, this nation did not invite this conflict and virtually any arms we supply with them are defensive in nature. And I, I think we're trying to make distinctions without a difference. Um, ultimately, uh, it's a nation that's fighting for its survival and it has demonstrated uh, its courage and we should do the best we can to help them. Because as you said, Jim, right, this whole notion of, you know, he's on the ropes, he, you know, he's, he's gonna regroup and he has said he wants to return NATO to its 1997 borders. That includes a lot of the countries that he could still mess with uh, on the Eastern flank of the Alliance. Dove, let me just bring you in here. You wrote a great piece. Don't keep citing World War III as a reason to self-deter yourself. It ran in the Hill uh, today. I commend people to check it out. We've been discussing that theme on the program here for a couple of weeks uh, at, as well. Sort of give us your sense on, on how this ends. Uh, and then we can go to sort of the Asia portion of the discussion, which Patrick has been patiently uh, waiting to weigh in on. Go ahead, Dove. Well, first, uh, I'm pretty much in agreement with a lot of what uh, Jim just said. Um, one thing, though, they, they've got uh, 200,000 or so troops there. Uh, right now, they have 900,000 active. And we don't know what state of readiness they all are, but he can't pull them all from, from the, uh, his borders with the rest of NATO. And he, frankly, he can't pull them all from his border with China. So he doesn't have all that many troops actually to play with, uh, which is why I think he's recruiting Syrians, among others. Uh, and Chechens, fight. right? Chechens and as well. Che well, Chechens are part of Russia, so I guess he can just dragoon those guys. Um, the key thing, though, is, you know, what makes him stop? He stops when he realizes he can't go any further. Um, he's I think he's already I mean, we don't really know what's in his head. Uh, I'm not into pop psychology. I don't know. He certainly for a guy that we didn't consider crazy six weeks ago, uh, he didn't wake up one morning and become crazy. He might have, but I don't know that. Um, what we do know is that uh, he keeps trying to add more territory, whether he can take Kiev. I suspect it's going to be a lot harder for him to do that, uh, even though that's what he would like to do. But he's been wanting to do that for three some weeks now. Um I think that we should, in fact, transfer those uh, MiG-29s, the S-300s. The British, by the way, are transferring much more modern stuff. Uh, I announced that they're going to do that. Uh, and so it comes down to us. And, and this argument that somehow uh, World War III will break out and he'll go nuclear. Well, first of all, the Russians know what happens if they fire off a nuclear weapon. Uh, that starts a war that doesn't exactly give... Uh, uh, Mr. Putin, the Russian empire he'd like to have. In fact, it doesn't give him very much at all if he survives that. Um, and, and secondly, it, it seems to me that uh, the Russian doc, the so-called Russian doctrine presumes that Putin's generals are going to say, yeah, boss, we're going to go ahead and fire off a nuke. I'm not sure they would. 
Uh, and so it seems to me that, you know, if there are reasons we don't want to transfer MiG-29s, General Walters over in Europe says that we shouldn't, uh, that's one thing. But there's an awful lot we can transfer, particularly high altitude air defense. And this business about how it'll take forever to train them, uh, train the Ukrainians on Patriots, those people are going to work 24-7 to learn whatever they have to learn as quickly as they have to learn it. And it seems to me that we ought to be transferring Patriots. If the Brits can transfer their high, high technology stuff, so can we. And it seems to me that we are just scared of our own shadows and we're making Putin out to be more than he is. And when he watches us talk about World War III, he's delighted because that way he can spook us even more. Um, I, I, I want to say that uh, after, uh, again, after a strong start, uh, there are these worrying signals where we are self-deterring ourselves. Uh, and again, it's, it's not, you know, shoes and offices don't deter him. Hard capability deters him. And, and he has to pay a price uh, for this. And I do think that we have to be mapping a very long game uh, on this as well. Uh, and I'm glad that, um, you know, uh, we are discussing uh, these thugs for what they are. They're war criminals. They were war criminals in Georgia. They were war criminals uh, in Chechnya. They were war criminals in Crimea. They were war criminals in Syria. Uh, and now we're seeing that again, and they have to be brought to account for it ultimately uh, in, 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 a, in, a, in a world that uh, claims to care about this stuff. Uh, Patrick, you've been exceptionally patient waiting uh, until this point. Obviously, one of the most consequential elements of this is what China does. Uh, Jake Sullivan uh, met with uh, uh, Yang Jiechi in uh, Rome, uh, and they uh, had a seven-hour uh, meeting. President Biden spoke with Xi Jinping uh, within the last uh, 24 or 12 hours or so, uh, and uh, the president made clear to China what the stakes are, that the United States is not going to exempt them from sanctions. Um, whereas the Chinese have said, hey, we're peacemakers in this propagated Russian propaganda, while at the same time saying, hey, I can do whatever I want with the Russians. That's my business, not yours. Where are we uh, on this? And, and you know, what from your careful reading of what China is saying uh, internally and externally suggests what direction they're going to go in? Because they can't, as you pointed out last week, they're not happy with what the Russians have done here. Well, thank you, Vago. And I want to talk about China, but I do want to first say that we have to deal with this in terms of both strategic theaters. So I just go back to your question about how this ends, <clears throat> even though we don't know how it ends. I suspect diplomacy becomes dominant when Russian forces have quit Ukraine. Um, and that, as Dove uh, has suggested, is when Putin no longer thinks he can win uh, and when he's uh, forced to stop. Um, and we're not there yet. Um, but this thread of endgame is going to continue to be part of the diplomatic uh, discourse. And so as the NATO summit occurs next week, President Biden goes there. You see people like Prime Minister Boris Johnson saying, let's talk about endgame, Mr. Biden. Um, these discussions are going to continue to be a thread throughout this, uh, this conflict, even if it leads into an insurgency. Um, and there'll be a lot of discussion about the neutral status of Ukraine in the future, potentially. Uh, and the, the debate about what that means and what kind of guarantees there are. So it will not end. It's going to continue to go on. The Russians no doubt want to pick up the diplomacy discussion just when we're about to arm the Ukrainians um, to try to slow down the pace of that. So what's happening in the, in the Indo-Pacific here? What's happening <clears throat> with the President Biden, Xi Jinping phone call? You know, the, the, the attempt to keep open channels with China, everybody agrees is important, 
but we have to recognize they haven't gone that well. Um, you know, whether we're talking about the Secretary of State and the National Security Advisors meetings starting with in Anchorage of March of last year, um, in Zurich uh, in the fall, uh, in Rome, as you say, this week uh, with, with uh, Jake Sullivan and Yang Jachir, and now the telephone call that uh, President Biden has just had today, um, China's not taking our point of view. Um, they're not walking away from Russia. Um, they're, we don't know yet whether the uh, uh, assistance to Russia to include evading sanctions, um, mind you, they've already got uh, you know $100 billion plus oil and gas uh, sort of arrangement, and there's no way the Chinese are going to back off of that. So they're not joining sanctions for sure. So they are going to definitely help Russia's economy. But if they're going to help them militarily in this race, then they're going to face the, the costs that are going to be imposed uh, in two ways. One of them is there will be sanctions on China. And the other one is, uh, I think, as the president made clear, they're risking uh, a Cold War 2.0. And that has enormous consequences for Xi Jinping in China. And, and what are uh, those consequences, right? I mean, I believe ultimately both of these dictatorships are vulnerable. The compact they've made with their people is, I will give you economic prosperity in exchange for your freedom. People will put up with that as long as they have that prosperity. The Chinese economy is in deep trouble, um, right, uh, on many, many levels. Civil servants have had to take uh, significant pay cuts, right? How well, does this play out and what do we do to help exacerbate Xi's troubles at the end of the day? We have to be careful about the economic projections. I mean, we're facing, uh, you know, close to double digit inflation later this year, according to some forecasts, and that's going to have global ramifications, the energy policy, not just on China, but on us and the global economy. So we, it's really hard to look at the future economy at the moment. It, the forecasts that have been done, including one that was just done out of Australia, out of the Lowy Institute, a very good one this past week, an in-depth one, looking out to mid-century, suggested that the Chinese economy is likely to slow down to about 3% growth by the end of this decade. Now, those are pre-war projections. Um, they may be even slower. But the point is that China really can't count on the kind of economic power that it thought it might have you know, five years ago, um, and it may be slower in the future. So that is a factor because the legitimacy of the Communist Party and of Xi Jinping in particular is predicated on significant economic growth. Um, but that's the long game. What we're talking about right now <clears throat> is a political uh, game of chicken uh, between uh, Beijing and Washington over the rules of the road um, and whether the uh, Russia-China vision laid out in Beijing again on 4 February between Xi and Putin uh, is going to be the dominant narrative uh, and they're going to stick to that or whether we're going to have no this rules-based approach that was built up with the United States and Europe and other allies like Japan uh, in Australia and Korea, uh, in the post-war world, are going to uphold this and stand against uh, naked aggression. The phone call was all about telling uh, Xi Jinping, uh, you cannot have this both ways. That you cannot win by letting, uh, you know, waiting to see whether Putin's going to win or lose, because you have to stand up for the sanctity of territorial integrity. It's your basic principle, by the way, China. And the Chinese are going to resist that at all costs. They're going to want to look like they're able to play a mediation role, which they're not. Uh, and it, it has to be very clear that there will be costs. So what are those costs? Those costs are Taiwan. Uh, and a lot of this discussion is really about Taiwan. Um, and, and even 
the military uh, interactions this week. The Chinese just put a carrier right through the Taiwan Strait just before the telephone call. No accident. They've learned from us, in effect, in terms of how to do uh, you know crisis management and, and phone conversations with a leader. Um, and um, they've also just talked. Both sides have talked about um, the. Uh, air encounters, the close air encounters we had just before the 2020 presidential election. So this is when the Chinese feared there might be an October surprise by the Trump administration. Um, well, we, we're getting more details out from both the PLA and from U.S. forces about, well, these were F-35s uh, encountering J-20s with their um, sort of uh, you know advanced long-range air-to-air missile, uh, also with these KJ-500 airborne early warning and control aircraft in the East China Sea on multiple occasions having these close encounters, dangerous encounters, um, in the United States trying to make sure we had the overmatch when it came to being able to, to disrupt the kill chain of, of what the Chinese might be able to fire and let them know that we can do that, meaning that they weren't going to be able to get our signals, um, make the decision to fire and hit our target without us being able to disrupt that first um, so that game is a, a serious one, and it's one we could see played out across that blue wall of NATO in, in Russia, Ukraine, by the way. So both of these theaters are um, mirroring each other in terms of strategic challenges that have serious military implications, but they're about the basic rules of the road. China, get on board with the rules of the road that, that you say you want, which is the integrity of territory and sovereignty, not siding with Russia's naked aggression. You either have to pay now or pay later, right? So I understand the inflationary pressure uh, issue, but ultimately this is about deterrence. This is about setting rules of the road and averting something that will be much, much more expensive, much, much more deadly, uh, and much, much more dangerous down the road, right? So you either pay now or you pay later. There's no such thing as getting it on the cheap. Uh, we've been trying that and hence... Uh, we've been very accommodationist. We've been very flexible. They'll come over to our mindset, even though we really knew that they never would, right? None of these discussions are new. Some of us literally on this call have been having this discussion for 20 damn years. So I guess the question, uh, Patrick, is in the event that we gear in and make that clear link and force them to make the choice, and there's no indication we have that this administration will back off from that, right? It's indicated that that is what will be necessary um, it will put China and Russia on the same page. Where are our Asia and Pacific allies and indeed our European allies? And Jim, want to get your sense on this, uh, because this is a shift that requires all of us to chain ourselves together, just like they're going to change, chain themselves together. Well, this is what gives President Biden some purchase vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Xi Jinping when he talks to him and he talked to him today. And that was that our allies are rallying to this cause. They are unifying. And in unity, there is strength. So what am I talking about? Prime Minister of Japan, Kishida, he's in Delhi this weekend talking to Prime Minister Modi. Yes, it's true that Modi doesn't want to condemn the Russians for the invasion of Ukraine, but you know what he wants to do? He wants to stand up to China. Uh, and that's what they're going to be focusing on, frankly, in those Delhi talks. Meanwhile, let's look at South Korea, because Yoon Suk-yeol, uh, who is the president-elect and will be inaugurated in May, He's still facing North Korea, about to want to fire a Hwasong-17 ICBM. And he's got to deal with that baptism of fire I've written about this week. But um, he's also standing up to China at the same time. And it's very noteworthy. Who are the people, who are the leaders calling Yoon? Um, President-elect Yoon has had calls from the quad countries of Japan, Australia, uh, the United States, uh, as well as from the UK. 
So you start to see not a quad, but maybe a sextet forming of six key allies of the United States getting stronger and willing to stand up to aggression and to coercion. Uh, and uh, China's gonna, going to take note of that just as they've taken note of AUKUS. Uh, and we should say, right, the partners of the Pacific or the Pacific Partnership Nations, that brings France into the equation as well. So even if you see a recalcitrant India, um, you see uh, a much broader, stronger coalition forming. Let me just uh, shift gears very quickly. Dove, um, you've got to jump out. Um, so parenthetically, I'm going to ask you uh, about Iran uh, before I, I go to Jim for the China-Europe uh, question. Uh, where are we uh, in talks? And is it time for the United States to actually say, these are over, they're not going to lead anywhere good and just slam uh, the Iranians with much, much tougher sanctions and leave it at that and show the world we're not messing around on this. We will bring you to your knees as easily as we'll bring the Russians to your knees, to their well, knees. Well, first of all, the Russians uh, who were holding out and saying we're not going to support the deal unless uh, you leave us alone about these sanctions, uh, they've turned around again. So they're back supporting the deal. And uh, there was testimony this week uh, by Rob Malley uh, uh, and Brett McGurk on the Hill about this. Uh, they think they're very, very close. And, and the real issue is, does Iran get everything it wants on sanctions? And the answer is no, because Congress isn't going to lift any of the sanctions. Um, the Israelis are still very uptight about it, although they're exceedingly low key and they're beginning to think about alternative approaches. And that I've even seen an argument that uh, this will help Israel get closer to the United States if it doesn't make a whole public fuss about the deal. The deal itself is still as useless as it was before. It doesn't address uh, the Iranian troublemaking throughout the region, which scares all our Gulf allies, probably as much as it scares Israel. And of course, money's going to be released. Nobody knows how many billions, but uh, most people believe that most of those billions are going to go to supporting uh, the kinds of uh, militias that fired missiles at our people uh, just this other week in Erbil in, in northern in Kurdistan. So there's nothing good about this deal. Uh, but there are an awful lot of people in the administration who were involved in it last time and want to revive it any way they can. Uh, let me ask you one uh, last uh, brief question. Um, I uh, was talking to uh, a friend uh, in the Gulf uh, and he was saying, look, you know, everybody's coming back to uh, Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia. Right. Um, it's 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 good that MBS has uh, looked beyond the rhetoric that leaders heaped on him. I pointed out that that was after the Khashoggi uh, matter and, and the Yemen campaign that was problematic. It in, it's very, very clear that the that Saudi Arabia, as well as UAE, are trying to hew a very, very different policy. UAE making it very clear, for example, that Russian money is very welcome and they won't be sanctioning anybody, right? Um, and oh, by the way, we're pumping more oil. So why don't you just sit in color there, uh, Washington? How, how do these nations play in, in this crisis? And you know, the United States has viewed them as allies and partners, extended security guarantees to them. But at this point, they seem to be sort of doing their own strategy and perfectly happy with the Russians, right? I mean, what's the way to look at this and what this dynamic is going to look like going forward? Well, I think it's just simply an extension of the hedging that began uh, not long ago, uh, literally when the, the Democrats came into office. They weren't excited about the Abraham Accords. For some time, they wouldn't even talk about them. Well, that didn't make the UAE particularly happy. Uh, as you mentioned, since Khashoggi, uh, Democrats in particular have been very, very hostile to Saudi Arabia. Uh, 
Uh, and uh, quite frankly, it's, you know, the, the money is going into Dubai, not Abu Dhabi, where uh, the, the crown prince sits, Mohammed bin uh, Zayed. Uh, and Dubai is always open to everybody's money. And that's where the Russians are running to. Um, the Emirates are still furious that we really said very little about the Houthis firing missiles at them. Uh, the Iranians are behind that. Uh, and, you know, they're play- they're going to try to hedge every six, every way they can. And uh, it's clear that uh, there's no great love right now uh, between the Emirates and the United States, which is a huge error on our part, I would argue. And uh, the Saudis are hedging. And part of that hedge is is working with the Israelis against Iran. And part of that hedge is reaching out to Iran at the same time, all of which has very little to do with what our policymakers in Washington are thinking. About. Does uh, the UAE bear any responsibility for that damaging well, of relations, especially its well, Yemen course, campaign? Over Yemen, yeah, they've alienated people over Yemen, but you know they've pulled out pretty much. Uh, it's the Saudis that are still going at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when the, uh, the Emirates did totally lower their profile in Yemen, they, they didn't seem to get much uh, satisfaction out of Washington. Uh, it's not that they're going to be hostile to us. It's just that they're, you know, the hedge continues. And part of that hedge is maintaining a relationship with Russia. Dove, thanks so very much for joining us. Really uh, appreciate it. And uh, we've got a couple of minutes left uh, and I'm going to go to Jim. Uh, Jim, you know, Patrick uh, queued up uh, the tension uh, and the challenge. And I may end very quickly with 30 seconds for Michael on this to sort of get his congressional view on it. Um how are Europeans seeing that? Right. I mean, we've seen this as an inflection point. European friends have, have told me uh, it is. And in, in, and what they talk about is that this is not just about Russia. It's also about China. And we have to wake up. Indeed, Olaf Scholz made that clear uh, in his statements uh, as well. From from your perspective, how is the mood changing? And is the European mood changing that unless we behave true to our values and address some of our challenges, energy challenges, for example, right? France announced we're going to go all nuclear for our power uh, and be very selective in where we, we get our other energy flows from, right? Ultimately, do you see that reordering? And is Europe ready to also take on China at this point, right? Are, are folks looking that far downstream in terms of who you're talking to? Well, I mean, what I've been, been hearing is certainly on the energy front. I think that's the first thing that they Europeans want to do is is deal with this depend this dependency that they have on Russia, and they're serious about that. And it's it's big money for some of these countries to have to make a shift. Uh, and so that's that's something that the EU is focused on. The nations themselves are focused on. Um, there's not an easy solution for some countries. Uh, it's, you know, some are 100% dependent on Russia. So so there's a lot of focus and a lot of work on that as a priority. Uh, the second priority is NATO, and they had a defense minister's meeting yesterday. Uh, the heads of state and government meet next week. They're talking about NATO force posture into the future and what should that look like and uh, who should do what to whom in terms of providing more forces. Uh, a lot of nations got rid of their armor over the past 10 to 15 years, so we need more armor. Um, we need more air defense. We're, we are learning also a lot about what we don't have as we watch what happens in Ukraine and with Russia. Um, and so I think um, I, I think in terms of, of what Europe is saying in terms of defense, we've heard what the Germans have said, uh, which was absolutely historic. Um, other nations are, are going towards the 2%. They're making a lot of effort. As you pointed out, Bago, a lot of us have been working this capabilities 
uh, side for 20 years or so. And we can't help but be a bit, you know, hoping, hoping and crossing our fingers that in fact this happens, uh, that the Germans will follow through, that the other allies will follow through, that they'll make the effort, they'll do something. And, um, and even after they've made the effort, there's, there's a fear that if the EU jumps in, NATO jumps in, uh, in terms of the procurement processes, uh, where the EU says, look, as you spend more money on defense, do it through the PESCO process, do it through the EU processes. Um, NATO is going to say, well, no, we got defense planners here. The, the NATO defense planners will tell you what we need more of and your share of that. Uh, and so this is so we could end up with a real food fight in the year or two ahead as nations actually begin to see the money uh, and begin to make procurement decisions. And I'm just really fearful about that. That's uh, particularly with Germany. Uh, I just don't want to see monies being thrown. Um, and you don't think of Germans necessarily doing this, but I would not want to see money thrown at projects that don't necessarily meet requirements at NATO or the EU for that matter. So, but, but there's, they seem to be serious about it. There's a lot of good rhetoric. Uh, they, the, the Germans worked on their, on their budget a few days ago. And the numbers seem to be there, but, but there's a lot of us are holding our breath and hoping that this is actually gonna, gonna happen and we'll, we'll see if it does. In terms of China, you know, I don't hear a lot about China. I think there's an acknowledgement that yeah, China's part of this too. But, but right now they're so overloaded with what's happening in Ukraine and dealing with refugees and dealing with sanctions and all that. I think there's a bandwidth issue. And then as far as China is concerned, they'll deal with China when it's time to deal with China. But right now um, they've got a fire going on in their front yard uh, and they're gonna, and that's where their focus is. Certainly, Jim, and, and look forward to having everybody back on next week because it, this is going to be a very consequential uh, heads of state uh, NATO meeting, clearly. Uh, in, in terms of, um, you know, messaging, but also real-term uh, uh, capability. Uh, Michael, 30 seconds. Where, where are lawmakers, especially in the connection uh, between China and, and Russia, right? I mean, our strategy has been to keep them separate. We have accommodated each to an extent, not to push them, right? I mean, we've played the nuance game, and they ended up dance partners anyway, right? How are lawmakers looking at this? And is, is, are, are any members, to your knowledge, taking a much more strategic, longer-term view about why it's important to stand up to both of these guys, that, you know, striking a deal that appeases one to keep them separated from the other is just not going to work. Well, I mean, look, I, I had this conversation with a couple of House members yesterday, all right, and I think that, um, and, and, and I've had it with several, you know, during the week, and I think some naively look at um, Russia and China uh, similarly as far as what's happening here in Ukraine and the sanctions we're imposing on the Russians versus uh, sanctions we could impose on the Chinese for not cooperating with us here, or if they were to uh, invade Taiwan. And you know, as we've talked about in the show previously, there's really apples and oranges. And what I remind a lot of these members that how economically tied we are uh, to the Chinese, that the Chinese really do uh, have the goods on us, that we have a lot of work to do to start to uh, reconstitute our ability to do things here that we don't do anymore when it comes to you know, rare earths and especially our pharmaceutical industry, our healthcare industry, the things that we rely upon. Uh, uh, China for that we just cannot do here. Even if the Europeans were to produce some of those items, uh, the ingredients uh, come come from China. So, uh, you know, we have to think twice about how we how we uh, punish China versus how we're, we're, we're punishing Russia. So, um, you know, I think that they're cognizant of that. I think there's a lot of talk in that sense. I think a lot depends on whether, too, we can pass, um, you know, the, the Senate working out their conference between what was called, you know, endless frontiers, Yusika, or um, you know, it keeps changing the name of that, but that, that's a step in the right direction, but there's still you know, a long way to go. Patrick, very, very quickly, uh, are there folks who fully appreciate the economic dimension of this breakup with China? Like, what does it look like 
Is it even executable? Or is this more of sort of fanciful, we're going to sound tough and actually make ourselves look remarkably stupid uh, in four months' time, right? I mean, is this going to be a condition a little bit like Saudis and Emiratis said, you know what, you'll be, you'll be back. We still have the energy and you need it. We have the markets. We make the products cheap for you. You'll be back. I mean, is, is that, I mean, are folks fully appreciative of what this means if we do begin to sanction the Chinese and are people ready for it? I think they should be ready for it. I think it's kind of obvious. I think we have to do it. The question is, have people thought through to, the, to your satisfaction the magnitude of what this means? Uh, of course not. I mean, this, you know, it's it would be such a radical departure and the implications so vast for both countries and the world that it's hard to fathom it. And no, we haven't done enough thinking, uh, you know, just on the rare earths, just when you start to take one issue. I mean, the Australians are just announcing major uh, sort of investments now. Uh, Prime Minister Morrison, uh, lithium, cobalt, rare earths production to make sure that we collectively are able in the future to have that kind of supply ready uh, and produced and not be overly reliant on China. But you take so many different elements of key sectors and the economy in general, where China is integral to it, uh, you can't really separate all of those. It's going to have to be selective, just as with any de decoupling on high technology sectors. And there, I expect that to keep accelerating, that decoupling of those selective, most critical technologies and the critical infrastructure, including telecommunications that we need to be secure, um, that's where we'll, we'll see a lot of people uh, running away from China. But as for sanctioning China on Russia and, and assisting Russia, I think those may be more symbolic at first. Um, if, if China goes down that route, they had a two-hour call today, you know, Xi Jinping and, and Joe Biden. And I think uh, they both agree, both leaders agree they don't want to see this crisis escalate. But the reality is I, I don't think there's a lot of trust that China is going to stay out of this and be truly the so-called pro-Russia neutral that it itself describes itself. It's going to have to be uh, pro-world uh, order and not pro-aggression uh, for the satisfaction of the U.S. To, to, to stave off sanctions. But I don't think the sanctions on China are the big concern right now. I think the big concern right now is the war that Russia has against Ukraine and that China needs to stand on the side of the international community against the war. And that's the issue. And if they don't, then we're going to see an acceleration of this Cold War in, in the Indo-Pacific as well. Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Have a great weekend, a great week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks a lot. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.